everybody, welcome to the July 17th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the announcement this week that political journalist and friend of this table, Lynn Bartles, will be leaving the Denver Post at the end of July. Bartles will become the communications director for the recently elected Secretary of State, Wayne Williams. Pat Cahoon uh, from Westward, uh, me personally, this hit me between the eyes. I was hoping it was some sort of sick Twitter joke, but it wasn't. She's actually moving on after being uh, one of the stellar political journalists in Colorado for over 20 years. What do you think? And 35-year journalism career. Mm -hmm. Lynn is great. I'm going to miss reading her every morning. And you would read her every morning because mm -hmm. she wrote, she worked so hard. She will work hard at the Secretary of State's office. That is definitely all of Colorado's gain because she'll be communicating not just with the two journalists left in Colorado, but she will be communicating, I think, with the public. So that'll be good. But we'll certainly miss her around this table, too. Uh, I could not agree with that more. David Copel for the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, what is all of Colorado's loss is Wayne Williams and his staff's gain. I, I got to tell you, he you know, was a fine guy to meet during the Secretary of State debates, but probably bottom of my pool of, of uh, offices that I thought Lynn might be getting to if she ever got out of the Denver Post. What did you think of the appointment? Well, when the place you're working at and you, and you like, the Rocky Mountain News goes under, she got was able to go to the Post and that's it's not under but it's it, it, it sure ain't rising either uh, I'm sure she's very happy ultimately with how the elections turned out that Scott Gessler didn't run for re-election <laughs> because I think she'll have an easier time as a public information officer I also suspect that besides being purely the spokesperson to the public that by her temperament and personality she will be influential behind the scenes so she will be telling Secretary Williams, you can't do that. Do you know how stupid that idea is? And she'll be very blunt about it in private, and whatever the secretary decides, she'll explain, explain well to the public. But I think she'll be a, a good advisor uh, besides being a good spokesperson. I agree. Uh, Penn Tate, attorney at Greenberg-Traubrig, also a longtime state lawmaker. Um, besides the shock from it, what do you think of the appointment, and what do you, how do you think it will be as Lynn Bartle's communications director? That's, that's not something that really easily rolls off the tongue, at least for myself. What do you think? Well, in many ways, she was the communications director for the Denver Post on political issues. That's true. Um, I, you know, I, the shock value has hit me so hard because I had a chance to see Lynn a couple days before the announcement and she said she was contemplating the retirement so when I actually saw it um, put out there uh, I wasn't that stunned. It's really the end of an era in terms of the type of political reporting we've seen in Colorado particularly at the State House. but you know congratulations to her congratulations to Wayne Williams this is a huge get and pickup for him and, and David is absolutely right um, what Lynn what she brings to the table is an institutional memory about state government that most people in state government just don't have now. So she'll be able to tell the Secretary of State very bluntly, this is a dumb idea, and here's why, and, oh, and if you go do the research, you'll see why it, it didn't make sense before. Um, and I think that only works to the benefit of Colorado and her citizens. Um, she, I think she'll, she'll just be able to temper some of the discourse in state government, hopefully. Um, but I wish her well, and congratulations. Uh, we'll miss um, being able to serve with her on panels here, though. 
Absolutely. And Ben Gelt, rounding out the panel, a public affairs consultant. Uh, I think Ben hit a, a very good point there about institutional memory, especially in the, in the era of term limits, whether you like them or don't like them. There are a lot of new faces in the State House on a routine basis. There are new faces we'll be talking about later at the City Council level. Um, having people with that kind of institutional memory is not common. Um, do you think that will be a particular loss when we get around to covering next year's legislature? I think there's no question, and I think as you certainly can no doubt deny that, that the Secretary of State uh, has a huge gain, I think that overall the state of Colorado is seeing a loss, even though she's now going to be serving the public directly because of that loss of institutional memory, because of the loss of another strong writer who's representing the press and not a particular point of view. And I think it really begs the question of where are we going to go uh, moving forward for meaningful local news on a daily basis? Um, I think clearly newspapers aren't dead yet, but they're quickly dying, and it's a sad thing. Um, there are other models out there. I mean, certainly this station is an example, and NPR and CPR are other examples. And, you know, I, I'm personally hopeful that the newspaper model can really change as we continue to see this exodus of talent uh, and institutional memory. Um, we need the change because the public overall needs to be served by a private entity and not being told directly by government agencies what's what because there's always bias involved in that. So it's a tremendous loss, I think, for the people of Colorado. And while it's a nice gain for the Secretary of State, uh, I think it's an overall negative or deficit. Big shoes to fill. Well, the big story this week, after only 13 hours of jury deliberation, a guilty verdict was reached in the Aurora Theater shooting trial on Thursday. The trial now enters the punishment phase, where the defendant does face the death penalty. Uh, Petty, um, we were just talking about before the show started of uh, who was surprised and not surprised at the speed. You and I were both surprised of how quickly the jury was able to turn this around. Uh, not that there's a whole lot of doubt about guilt, but there's a lot of things to consider. I mean, they had hours and days, weeks of testimony. Um, besides the speed of the decision, uh, what did you think about it coming to this resolution so far? Well, we had about as many weeks of testimony as we had hours of deliberation, so I was surprised. I was also, I have to say pleasantly, although it's a hard word to even use in this, pleasantly surprised that the trial went as smoothly as it did. The coverage wasn't excessive. People generally behaved themselves. Nothing disastrous seemed to happen. It was speedier than we thought. Um, it was really fascinating as you started hearing more about the jurors to realize what an incredible caliber of Coloradans served on that jury were willing to be out there for months, and it could have been much longer than it was. I was surprised that I think guilty was going to be inevitable the way this trial went. I still wish that the original plea agreement had been taken so we would have been spared the trial and we would have had him in prison for the rest of his life. Now we're going to go through what I think may cause a lot more upheaval and discussion on where Colorado is on the death penalty. Mm -hmm. uh, David, you're one of our two esteemed lawyers on the panel today. Um, I was very impressed as a layperson watching Judge Carlos Samor. Um, it seemed to be a textbook style of how to handle a high-profile case, which we don't always see from judges around the country. Um, did I see it uh, accurately as a layperson? Oh, I think so. I think he was like Judge Mach, the federal judge who presided over the Timothy McVeigh trial for the Oklahoma City, bombing, Oklahoma City bombing, and the opposite of Judge Ito uh, exactly. from the uh, O.J. television, uh, O.J. Simpson uh, cable TV series uh, <laughs> we had several uh, a couple decades ago. 
the prosecution in this case had the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant met the standard of sanity for this purpose, which is knowing right from wrong. On the one hand, you had conflicting testimony from psychiatrists on, on each side. On the other hand, you had unquestioned evidence of long-time deliberation, planning, and deception by the perpetrator. So it may be that the jury taking that this was not an impulsive crime where somebody suddenly went into a psychotic phase and, and did something. That, that certainly happens with people who are mentally ill. That even taking into account the mental illness here, the, the long-term nature of it uh, showed enough knowledge and, and responsibility uh, that can, he can be held accountable. But I'd say if, if the verdict had come out the other way, I would also have deferred to the jury because they're the only ones who sat through the whole thing. Maybe the same folks in the media did, I suppose, too. But none of us at this table saw every minute of that trial, including every minute of the psychiatric testimony. So that, that's our great system of government where 12 people with common sense and varied life experiences uh, come together and decide collectively. Pena, our other esteemed lawyer, what did you think of the cases presented, uh, and did that lead to the speed of the jury deliberations? You know, I think it did. I, I, to your prior point with David, I, I think Judge Zamora ran, ran a, a very good trial, very efficient, very professional. And, and we have to give credit to the jurors, and I should say the remaining jurors, because remember at one point we had so much attrition on the panel, there was a question whether you'd have enough to finish this thing. Um, the, I wasn't surprised by the speed of the verdict, though. Uh, as I just caught snippets of, of, of how the trial was proceeding, I thought it was very clear, which is partly why I was hoping the plea agreement would have been reached on the front end. It seemed very clear that this was clearly planned, premeditated, and predetermined uh, actions by, by this perpetrator. So guilt wasn't the issue. The question was whether he was legally responsible for his conduct. And, and It'll be fascinating to see if the jury talks after this, because some judges let you talk to jurors, some don't. I'd be fascinated to know if they decided, based on the non-expert testimony, that this guy was legally sane and accountable, and that they just looked at the, the, the competing uh, experts as whether it would tip them back the other direction. But I thought the evidence was overwhelming. The prosecution, I thought, did, did a very good job. The defense did what they could with what they had. Um, but it, it, it very much, just at one glance, struck me as a guy who was perfectly sane and rational, and once he got arrested, he lost his mind. And, and I think maybe that's how the jurors took it. Uh, 13 hours to deliberate with 160-some counts, they probably spent six hours filling out the verdict forms. So I would imagine that their decision was probably made pretty rapidly. Mm -hmm. Ben, I mean, I was not only impressed with uh, Judge Carlos Moore, but I was also impressed with how uh, the Denver media handled this entire trial. And I, I realize we still have a punishment phase to go through, but uh, I saw yesterday a lot of focus on the victims. Mm -hmm. You still saw a lot of focus on the Aurora Theater trial, not mentioning the defendant's name. Mm -hmm. it, it seemed maybe just a sad result of the different all the experience we have as a, as a community with uh, crimes like this, that we handled this one, we did it right. What would you think? I would agree, and I would also agree with your supposition that uh, it's based on experience. Um, I thought, uh, as we learned, uh, the profiles of the individuals on the jury and the foreman, of course, being a former Columbine student and friends with the perpetrators there and also friends with some of the victims, um, we have gone through this before, 
and I think that our media has learned the lesson very clearly of how to treat these things and how sensitive it is. So I think that the media has done a, a remarkably good job of being sensitive, of trying to uh, give coverage to the victims and their families and the fallout as opposed to focusing on the perpetrator, which um, you know, I think we see in, in the media and, and how these things repeat themselves, that is what a lot of these people are looking for is that attention. So mm -hmm. um, I think the media does deserve quite a bit of praise for their um, subtle coverage. In a 6-2 decision this week, the Colorado Board of Health voted to not include post-traumatic stress disorder to the list of medical conditions to be treated with medical marijuana. The board cited lack of scientific evidence as the reason they couldn't support it at this time, despite recommendations from Colorado's chief medical officer, Dr. Larry Wolk. Uh, David, what did you think of the decision? Uh, they, uh, I guess I was surprised it just came down to this board. Do you think there's a way to appeal this? Is this the final word for a while? What do you think? No. The legislature in Maine in 2011 amended its medical marijuana law by saying specifically that it is allowed for PTSD and I think that's what the legislature in Colorado should do as well. The board in my view was wrong because the medical marijuana was created in our state by a constitutional amendment of the people and accordingly deserves to be interpreted broadly for its remedial purposes. It is true to say that there is not a lot of research on PTSD and medical marijuana because medical marijuana is on federal schedule one in the Controlled Substances Act, which is means it has, by definition, no possible medical marijuana, no me possible medical value. That is flat earth pharmacology. It's obviously wrong and completely unscientific. In fact, there is research that has nevertheless been done. First of all, there are rat and mice studies that have gotten very deeply into the uh, brain chemistry of how medical marijuana helps with PTSD on rats and mice done by Israeli scientists in journals such as neuropsychopharmacology. And more to the point, close at hand, in New Mexico, where they legalized medical marijuana for PTSD, a doctor there did a study, which was published in volume 46 in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs, of 80 patients there who used medical marijuana once it was allowed in New Mexico for PTSD and he found that there was an average 75 percent reduction in their PTSD problems with no adverse side effects. That's not the final study that could ever be done but it's certainly enough where the board should have said that's enough for us to go forward in carrying out the will of the people with their constitutional amendment. For anyone that would ever doubt the kind of expertise we have in this panel, I challenge any other Colorado show out there to offer the word neuropsychopharmacology in their program like we have right here. Very impressive analysis there, David. Uh, Penn, um, do you think any legislators will take this up as something to consider next session? I mean, we have, we have a lot of veterans in the state. We have the whole issue of the VA hospital. I think there's a lot of sympathy towards veterans getting some... Uh, service, especially with something like this. I mean, medical marijuana, we could, if we can have it for um, nearly anybody who can qualify for a lot of other uh, illnesses, it seems appropriate here. What do you think? Um, 
say, before I answer your question, I have to say lightning is striking somewhere because I agree with everything David Copel just said, <laughs> even the neuropsychological <laughs> pharmacology. And Dominic, in answer to your question, yes, clearly the legislature will step up and, and address this issue. Um, I appreciate the position the board's in, but I really think they exalted form over substance here. Um, and, and although the medical evidence isn't overwhelming, there is enough of it here that two of the board members voted to approve it. And frankly, the, the medical, um, the Colorado medical director recommended approval, and the rest of the board should have done it also. When you look at the totality of circumstances, a constitutional amendment, the population that's really affected by this, mostly veterans or, or you know, the debacle at the VA hospital where they aren't getting services at the new hospital and maybe never will. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but it sort of drags on forever. And the fact that we've already got medical and recreational marijuana, and why force people with a medical condition, uh, a proven medical condition, to have to resort to what's probably the more expensive option rather than the option that's designed to deal with medical conditions. So with all due respect and deference to the board, they made a bad decision uh, for all of the wrong reasons. Uh, and my hope uh, earnestly is that this will either be HB 1001 or Senate Bill 1 and the legislature will fix this next session. Ben, as a public affairs consultant, is this something that if a state lawmaker was talking to you about what they should be uh, tackling next year, would you advise them to get on board with this? Well, I will also want to disclose that I'm a board member of a group called the Organic Cannabis Association, so I do have some involvement in the industry, um, mostly from a policy level and, and looking at how the plant is cultivated, which I think actually speaks directly to the medical efficacy of the plant. Um, to answer your question directly, I think that it absolutely should be addressed. I think if you look at many of the symptoms within PTSD, they are things that are already allowed uh, to be prescribed uh, cannabis for. So it seems like there's some specious reasoning going on. Um, and I do think that the legislature, this is a you know slam dunk, softball, whatever you want to call it, this is an easy one to fix. It's easy to want to help veterans have more options to take care of themselves. And, you know, frankly, regardless of the lack of uh, medical research into this space, the voters have clearly stated that we want to have cannabis on the table as a medical option. We're a heavy veteran and military state, and it's, it's really quite galling to see this kind of ruling come out. And as everybody else is saying, I suspect strongly that the legislature will correct it. Patty, wrap it up for us. Well, I will confess some conflict of interest here. I think it's possible Westward accepts money from marijuana <laughs> I've businesses. Heard that rumor. Yeah. Although we treat it just like alcohol, we'll accept alcohol money too. <laughs> Look, this is ridiculous. There has been there has been enough research on this to show that PTSD is indeed helped by medical marijuana. The state just authorized $2 million to go to Dr. Sue Sisley of Arizona, who is doing the leading studies on PTSD with veterans. If someone can go in and say their ankle hurts and get med medical marijuana, I don't see why they're going to fake PTSD. This is really an outrage, and I hope the legislature takes care of it. After hosting the state fair for 146 years, Pueblo may no longer be able to support the 11-day annual event. According to city officials, the fair at its current location is losing money each year and depends on tax subsidies. Uh, ben, we seem to hear about this almost every year, at least every other year. Um, have we reached the end of the road with Pueblo hosting this, or is this normal uh, 
problems that we always hear about about the safer. You know, this has been more than every other year. When I saw the story, I didn't make the, the committee meeting, but when I saw the story, I smiled because I think it was 2001 when I was in the joint, but when I was on the joint budget committee, I actually recommended the state creating either an authority or an enterprise to combine the National Western and the State Fair. The reasons being they were both struggling financially, both had core peak seasons at opposite ends of the calendar, January and then July and August. And it seemed that, that if we wanted to pay homage to the agricultural and Western heritage of the state through these institutions, then it was time to make a commitment to fund it and finance it to help Pueblo and the other private institutions that support these these vehicles. This is not a surprise. Years ago, the city of Pueblo, in conjunction with the Pueblo School District and the state, floated bonds to build the, the, the arena that I think is actually owned and operated by the Pueblo School District. The idea was to allow a, a larger venue for concerts and performances in conjunction with the state fair. This has been going on for decades. And at some point, we need to decide if we want a state fair, and is the state fair, not the Pueblo fair, then the people of the state of Colorado need to decide to pony up and step up and sustain it. The National Western is getting assistance from the state, from the city, from a bunch of other um, organizations, and that is fine. But if you really want to maintain it, you've got you've to support it. And I would argue that moving it from Pueblo is not the solution. The solution is to find a way to make it work in Pueblo. That's its history. That's its culture. That's sort of its basis. And if we really want to sustain that part of our heritage, we've got to do it there. I'm glad the legislative committee and others are looking at this because it's time to have the frank and intentional conversation about whether we want it or whether we just want to talk about wanting it. Ben, should it stay in Pueblo? Should it come up here to the National Western Stock Show Complex? Should it go away? I think it should stay in Pueblo. I think we should keep it. I think it's an important part of the Western heritage that we have. Their mission is to help young people connect uh, with agriculture and, the, and, and uh, sort of sustain and build those communities. And I think that's a vital part of who we are as Coloradans and, and what makes up our economy and what makes, our, what makes up our brain density here. We have a lot of expertise in ag and bio and food, and, and that's a big part of it. I think, you know, as I was researching this subject, I, I actually spent quite a bit of time looking at Frontier Days, which is another big Western event that happens 112 miles away from Denver as opposed to 102 in Pueblo. They have a different um, format in terms of some of their uh, programming. They, have, they tend to have high-end uh, country music singers and, and those sorts of things. You know, I think really it's, it comes down to how we manage it, how we look at it, um, and, and getting everybody engaged. I think that you know, Pueblo recently did turn down, the voters rejected a, a ballot initiative there to have, a, a, I think, a half a cent tax uh, to help fund this, uh, the state fair in part. Um, I think you know, with more help from the state, a more clearly defined plan, maybe going back to the voters of Pueblo again, um, we can find a way to better sustain it where it's not relying on subsidy and not losing money year over year. Patty, what do you think? Well, yeehaw, heading to Cheyenne tomorrow. But I've been to the Pueblo State Fair recently. It is great. First of all, it can't move because then you wouldn't be able to get the passkey sausage sandwiches, right. which mm -hmm. is a hallmark of Pueblo. Pueblo has gone through so many tough times. It's making a comeback, in part thanks to marijuana. And this is also a business you would like to keep there. Although I know the economics are tough, 
you can imagine right now the National Western is trying to figure out how they can corral this. Better would be to take the same pie-in-the-sky economic studies that are being done for National Western, have those same people plan the State Fair in Pueblo. They'll make it look good. <laughs> Certainly the Optimist Club. David, wrap it up for us. My grandfather won numerous medals for hog breeding, uh, including first places at the Iowa State Fair. State fairs are important economically for a state for the improvement of agricultural science, and they therefore should take place where agricultural people live and not in Denver as some tourist attraction so people who aren't participating in agriculture can come and then look at a cow uh, for the first time in their life. Many of the state fair's problems are inflicted from outside. Their energy costs have gone up from half a million dollars a year to $1.2 million. That is purely the fault of the Ritter ETC anti-energy agenda of jacking up prices uh, for electricity users uh, for the benefit of eco-feelings. <laughs> Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, start us off. Uh, one Connor Ward, who was a little poggled at the Renaissance Festival last weekend, ran off, stole a sword, and was tackled by two wenches. You have to love the fact that Colorado now, this went viral around the world, that Colorado women look very, very tough. Absolutely. David? Among the many lies in the sale to the public of the Iran appeasement program is that there is going to be anytime, anywhere inspections. To the contrary, you can ask for an inspection and the process takes 24 days, which is a reasonable amount of time to hide whatever you want to hide. Secondly, they get lifting of the embargo, not only on conventional arms, but on intercontinental ballistic missiles. There is only thing you do with an intercontinental ballistic missile, which is deliver a, a nuclear weapon to a target on another continent. Pen. Um, Grandma Brenda Little Spotted Horse, who now has uh, pleaded guilty to abandoning her grandchild at the fireworks. Um, I just don't know what more to say. <laughs> Nothing much more to say. Ben. I'd say the group of folks that greeted uh, President Obama in Oklahoma as he was on his way to make the first ever presidential visit to a, a federal penitentiary uh, who greeted him with Confederate flags. Shame on them. Absolutely. Say some nice, but somebody rather quickly. Patty? The victims and surviving family members of the Aurora shooting. Monday is the third anniversary. They've weathered the trial. They'll have to weather that, but they've done so with dignity. David? The Rocky Flats Lounge, a great bar on Highway 93 near Rocky Flats. They, they burned down in a, in a kitchen fire, and hopefully they will be able to rebuild because they have been a, a fine institution for many decades. Ten. Dinner to both, but also to the widely loved and much respected and greatly missed uh, Lynn Bartles as she transitions to her new position. Here, here. Ben. Um, I would like to acknowledge Ellen Powell, who was the former interim editor of Reddit, uh, who had an interesting op-ed this week about how the trolls are winning the Internet. And I would just urge viewers to be nice online and, you know, let's do better. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that you can catch any part of the show or CIO postgame online, and be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.